Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Uh, my name is Benjamin Murphy. And I'm Nick Thompson, Nick J.S. Thompson. Why do you do the Nick J.S. Thompson? <laughs> because when I started, it was just Nick Thompson, which is my name. But then suddenly this other photographer came onto the scene and suddenly became really big and was shooting for Vogue overnight. And he was called Nick Thompson as well. So I had to add the J.S. because otherwise all my web results were all coming up with the other guy. There's also, <laughs> I think, a, a, a jewel thief or something called Ben Murphy. <laughs> I think he's like one of these Costa del Crime criminals living up in Spain uh, <laughs> at the moment or something. So that's why I go by Benjamin. <laughs> one of the first questions I always have about creative people and their their business and all this kind of stuff, so whether they're practitioners or, or in the industry of, of selling or whatever, how do you how did you even get to the industry so like what's your background was it was your family creative was your um you know good teacher somewhere and experience throughout your lifetime so let's start with nick yeah i suppose there's some creativity in my family my mom's a graphic designer she was anyway she doesn't practice anymore but she does uh, she used to and i always knew that i wanted to be a photographer since i was about 14 maybe something like that i used to ride bmx and take pictures of BMX stuff and then that sort of grew into a love of all things photography really and then yeah so so I knew I wanted to, that's what I wanted to do but then so I went to college after after school uh, to do an art foundation course for a year to sort of uh, make sure that it was photography I wanted to do and tried all different practices and it, it was that what that I wanted to do but um, in the end I turned down my place at university and didn't go through the traditional arts education route I went traveling for a while, had a couple of photography jobs, went traveling again a few times and then came, moved to London and started working as an assistant for quite a few years. And that's how, that was the beginning of my journey into the art world. So uh, yeah, the, the photographer that I used to assist when I started assisting him, we started a, a magazine together called 55 Pages. He's, he's a photographer called Christopher Sims. Yeah, so that so we worked on that. I was the editor of that for about three years. That's how I first met Ben because we did a, a feature on his first solo exhibition in 2012 so then we became friends and that's that was the beginning of the Delphian partnership as well but yeah so so my my um, journey into the art world wasn't through the traditional art education route it was more on the job as valid as any other way to get into the arts world <laughs> yeah hopefully <laughs> and Ben you well I did go down the arts education route but mine was very much a decision born out of recklessness I suppose and it, I never had dreams of being an artist or anything like that. I basically left school at 16 and went to art college because I didn't want to join the real world and get a job. And then I did a degree and then a master's degree for the same reason. So I just enjoyed the university life a bit too much. And so just kept going to university, kept doing new courses. And then I moved to London on a whim and got a job in a gallery as like as an intern doing like general busybody type stuff. And that's how I started meeting people in the art world. And that's how I got offered a few exhibitions. But I never planned or dreamt of being an artist or even considered it as a career choice until I was in maybe, until I was maybe 23, 24. I feel like I kind of fell into it, although I did make a lot of subsequent decisions to join, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, I dicked around. I was a drug addict for a little while. I toured around as a roadie for five years with rock and roll bands. Like, we all find our little circuitous path to to the creative industries. Very yeah. rarely is it a straight. You know, I decided at a young age to do this, and it's gone yeah. straight that way perfectly. It just doesn't happen. All right. So on to the gallery. So you have this gallery. And from what I read, keep in mind, like I have not been to London in 20 years. So I don't, I haven't you know, participated in your space. You seem to not actually have a physical space, but you do, you choose sort of different locations as available. Yes. Yeah. 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 So originally it's when we first launched it properly, it was through 
a link that we had with a guy called uh, Stuart Watlington who runs the print space, which is a fine art printing company in London, in Shoreditch. And they also have a gallery space. He had built a website for a gallery that he wanted to run in the space, but then he didn't have time to basically operate it. So he, he contacted us and said, did we want to use the website and the space? And if so, we sort of hashed out a deal with him with uh, where we, we took the website, rebranded it with our own thing. And that's how we sort of launched Delphian in 2017. So yeah, that's how it first became about. But yeah, we don't have a permanent space. We either do shows at the print space or we do shows in other rent locations. Um, and we do them internationally as well. So have them in different countries different cities and also it's good to in some ways to not have a space because it, it allows you to sort of tailor the space to the work as well to be able to rent a particular location that fits well with the body of work um so yeah it definitely has some positives yeah so one show that we um that would have happened already this year was going to be a solo show with florence hutchins in paris and she's really inspired by impressionism so paris is a is the perfect location for her to do a solo show so because we're both practicing artists and we have other stuff going on as well, we only do about six or seven shows a year. So having a permanent location would mean that we have to do 12 shows a year and then you have to start doing art fairs. And so all of a sudden it's like 75% more work and we've both got other stuff going on. But also I think not having a permanent location allows us to take risks that a lot of galleries with permanent locations can't. So we, are able to do shows that we don't anticipate making money from. So say we're doing, well, we're doing this, this new print initiative that we might come to later, I suppose, where we're not taking a cut from the prints because of this lockdown and artists being in such a dire position economically. So we have the freedom to do things like that and take bigger risks than galleries with permanent spaces can. So it's working for us really well at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be tough, the sort of the future of all of this. But I do feel like the idea of not having a permanent space does give you a lot more freedom because you don't have the set overhead. You don't have the, you know, the the inherent uh, monthly bills and costs. So like to a certain extent, like even during this uh, this lockdown, like you have the freedom to say, yeah, we're not going to do anything. So you don't have to pay rent and air conditioning and all these other kinds of bills that other galleries are still having to pay. Mm, yeah, it's definitely uh, sort of we're in a very lucky position. We just get to sort of freeze things for a while and then sort of kick off once it's all clear. But in the meantime, it, it allows us to do things that could help out artists and or yeah, benefit people in other ways, but that other people might not be able to do. Yeah, and also I think alongside with that is that we target what we're doing to like early career emerging artists and so often the price point for those artworks is fairly affordable and so once you have a permanent space and you're paying say maybe up to three grand a month in rent in central london where we are you can't afford to be showing works at such price points so we would have to either inflate the prices or maybe change the business model to be showing a different type of artist which is just not what we set out to do well, I was actually just about to ask that, which is the the question of the choice to work with emerging artists. On the one hand, I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit on this, so bear with me. On the one hand, it's really great to give these opportunities to young and emerging artists. On the other hand, a lot of them haven't got the professional chops, let's say, sort of like the experience in the industry, and they may end up not being quite as professional. And many of them will potentially in the next five, 10 years, possibly even stop making work as well. So there's there's that difficulty of working with younger artists, you know, especially at certain price points, like, so if they're expensive or more expensive, uh, that is, it's difficult to say like, oh, you should collect them because, you know, they have a long track record and all this kind of stuff, but they don't. So you have to work with this sort of lower price point, younger collectors, I assume, um, and, and try to build these careers for these people. And that's, that's a lot of extra work as well. Obviously there are those kind of risks, but we don't, we don't choose artists based on whether or not we think they're a worthwhile investment. We choose artists based on if their work is great. And so if the work is great, then it doesn't really matter if the artists quit in five years because that painting is still amazing. So it's worthwhile buying these artists, even if they 
don't continue exhibiting because the work is good. Now, the artists that you're representing, are they all UK-based? No. And we, we don't officially represent any. We allow any artist that we work with to work with anyone else. And that's not necessarily a traditional way of a gallery working, but we think whatever's good for an artist is good for a gallery. So, yeah, we don't traditionally represent artists in a way that a lot of galleries do. And, and especially if they're just starting out and they're emerging as well, to not be tied to a, a gallery for uh, right at the beginning is, is quite a good thing, I think, because it allows them to have multiple opportunities with multiple galleries, whereas we'll help them with shows, but they could also do other things with other people. And we also promote those shows as well. So artists that we work with, if they work with other galleries, we, pr we promote those shows too. Okay, quick question. This is something I've talked with other people about. Give me a definition of an emerging artist, specifically sort of versus mid-career. I'd say mid-career is probably more starting to, bigger galleries starting to maybe have museum shows, auctions, secondary market, I would say. I grew up that a living artist was almost never in the secondary market and it seems like something that's only sort of come about in the past like 20 years or so this idea that a living artist could be part of the resale market so the idea of that is still a bit odd to me mm. but then i suppose if you look at like really big artists if you look at someone like david hockney he's still alive and i don't think you could call him uh, an emerging artist like mid-career he's like huge so yeah so yeah so i don't know i think that that definition is it's, uh, it's quite elastic, I think. <laughs> For me, it's difficult because um, the the term emerging, I believe, I feel like it implies an age thing versus a necessarily um, quality of work or longevity of career. Oftentimes, it's 35 and under. Yeah, I quite like the phrase early career because that doesn't imply an age. It's not derogatory in any way. A lot of, a lot of people use the term young artist regardless of how old they are, uh, based on how early their career is. And I think that's a little bit derogatory, a little bit exclusive, maybe. So, yeah, so I quite like the, the phrase early career. I still feel like an early career artist myself, even though I've been exhibiting since, well, eight years or something. I've been exhibiting for 25 years. And because I've been in academia and I'm now coming out of academia, I feel like I'm a bit more of an early career artist. Because the in academia the the pressures are to exhibit not necessarily to be sold or necessarily to uh, be represented or any of these kind of thing it's just have things to put on your cv kind of thing whereas when you're not under the umbrella of academia and under the security of the income and the, all that from academia now you're there is a, an added pressure to potentially sell works and be more engaged in the market no, no, I think that's a, that's, a good, that's a good point. I think early career artist is where the majority of the exciting work is coming from. So although it can be used as a, a negative classification, I think it's, it's the most exciting area of the art world. You mentioned that you're also practicing artists yourself. So like, how does the balance of like being a practicing artist and running a gallery, how does that work for you? Because I mean, I've been a practicing artist and worked in galleries and I felt sometimes it took away from my creative energies and time and whatever, whereas some other times when I worked in some galleries, it actually elevated it and you know, really encouraged me to do new and different things. I think in, in a time aspect, it definitely eats into the available time, of course, but I think there's so many positives that can come out of it. Just looking at your work and your practice in a different way, um, from a, coming from a curatorial background and looking at it from that from that um direction is is quite interesting and i think it's influenced a couple of my pre uh, previous solo shows and the way that i've approached them in the way that they were curated and the way that they're presented yeah have, have definitely been influenced by by splitting my time between the gallery and, and my practice yeah i agree i um i think it does take away in terms of time because now I do a fraction of the amount of days in the studio per week that I used to do. But I think it adds so much that it's a worthwhile trade-off, just about the like business knowledge and, the, and that kind of stuff. When you chose to get into running a gallery, which to basically is a, a business, literally, 
did you either of you have any business experiences that were relevant to that? No, not for me anyway. I don't think so. We we did kind of. So we've both worked in galleries. Nick was head of exhibitions. I think that was kind of your title, right? At the Prince. Yeah. He he also was um, editor of a magazine. I worked in Hudson Gallery for a while, and I used to run a cocktail bar. So we have little bits here and there. Transferable skills, maybe. Yeah, not, transferable right? skills, yeah. Specific gallery management acumen. Makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Okay. Now, I'm a huge, I have a huge interest in online presence, social media, all this kind of stuff. And since you all literally do not have a brick and mortar store where people can just walk in and buy things, I imagine that the online presence is very important for you. How much of it are you using? How much of it are you engaging in? Uh, websites, social media, virtual tours, all this kind of stuff. And how are they working for you or not working for you? Yeah, our social media presence is extremely important for us because, yeah, we don't have a brick and mortar store. So, so yeah, everything, all our traffic comes from social media pretty much. Bits and pieces of organic traffic through SEO, but but mostly through social media. So to have that as your one channel makes it <laughs> vital in the sort of uh, plan that, uh, that you're putting together for the gallery. Um, all our buyers come, pretty much all our buyers come from from uh, through social media and online. So yeah, keeping on top of that is incredibly important. Social media is a business tool, yeah? So it's a tool that can be used effectively and will benefit your business. So I think a lot of galleries, less so artists, but a lot of galleries neglect it and don't really treat it with the respect that it deserves and don't treat it like this vitally important tool that you can use to connect with the people who are going to be interested in what you're doing. So we, we take it very seriously. I have a question within that because I will fully admit I am horrible with social media. I, I think I'm just sort of of the generation just before the people who were really smart with social media. And I am I have a lot of difficulty with how much to share, what to share, how to engage, how to, and then even beyond the how to engage, how to build an audience. So like, how do you get the the new people in, engaged in what you're doing and keep them interested? Because it's one thing to like get the numbers, let's say, just to break it down to a business thing, like get the numbers, but it's the maintain maintaining the numbers and then, you know, keeping them interested that i find to be the more difficult part you can get the you can get the numbers in through hashtagging and things like that to to draw in new people to see work but maintaining is is all down to regular posting engaging in the community you have to treat it like a it's social media so you have to treat it like a social media you have to engage with people chat to other artists comment on stuff message people if you like certain things it's all about engagement so the more active you are in it the more you're going to get back from it, so it's uh, it can be time consuming, but it's definitely worth it in the long run. And it's it's just, it's I suppose it's the same as networking in real life. Really, it's just a virtual networking in a way. You're you're building a community and a network of artists, collectors, just people who are interested in art, and you're building that just through through engaging with them and, and talking to them. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people have a propensity to treat their social media, let's say Instagram page, as a website as a static website and that's just not the that's not what its um, main function is that's not where the value comes from it's about creating and engaging with a network of people and that's genuine engagement putting things out of value rather than just trying to sell yourself and engaging with things that other people put out i'm at a loss on that i have no idea how to do that well so like what kind of like in the arts because i mean keep in mind you know the in the grand scheme of social media, the arts is still a niche thing, you know? And so it, it's difficult to find those people that would be interested in whatever it is that you do, especially because we're also talking worldwide. So there's also translation issues and, and vocabulary issues and things like this. So how do you even find, I mean, I know hashtags, of course, but I've been using hashtags for years and obviously I'm doing something wrong for sure. So some advice, some ideas, some tips would be appreciated. Well, I think I think the way you phrased the question is kind of key because it's it's not necessarily about finding people that are interested in your work. They they will come to you. It's about finding 
stuff that you're interested in and by the nature of your work and what what you're interested in those things are going to be linked so there's a, a good chance that those people are going to be interested in what you're doing as well it, it is a lot harder as an artist than it is as a gallery to attract a community that are interested in what you're doing because artists are interested in galleries it's it's almost like a, a catch-all like a lot of galleries will just amass followers because they're a gallery the the term social networking or social social media the word social is is key so it's it's about finding things you're interested in and the, and finding and engaging with these people and so artists are an incredible resource for other artists so it's all about talking to people like artists and supporting their work and i think artists trying to reach out and connect with collectors or with galleries is never really going to work those people have to come to you i think what artists should be doing is connecting with other artists on social media which which is an interesting point because i mean i've talked with other people and they that specifically curators and gallery owners and stuff and how they're all saying like I really hate it when people direct message me or whatever it is, private message me with just basically like, here's my portfolio. Do you want to represent me? And we don't, not enough artists even do the research to, to be able to have a good pitch and say like, oh, is, is your work, does your gallery represent things like me or work with people like me? We as artists need to put a little bit more effort and research into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we get messages all the time. And it's obvious they haven't done any research on who we are sending us work that that's, that we've never shown. It's totally different to what we show. It's, it's just a waste of everybody's time. It's a waste of their time. But like sending out these emails, they could be focusing their efforts to somewhere that's really relevant to them. So it's just, yeah, I don't, yeah, people need to do a little bit more research before reaching out. And also just look at galleries, submissions, policies, because if they do have a submission policy, that should be followed very carefully and exactly how they've laid out because that's the reason they've laid it out for you. So yeah, a little bit of work beforehand goes a long way. Also, to be entirely candid, because we were talking about talking about things that people don't want to don't usually talk about, I think a lot of galleries and curators have a bit of an ego and don't want to be told what is good. And so when an artist contacts a gallery Maybe ego is the wrong word, but when, when an artist contacts a gallery and says, you should be showing my work, that kind of says two things to the, to the curator or gallery. Firstly, it kind of says, or at least to a lot of, this is the way a lot of curators would see it, is firstly, this is good, you don't know about it, you should know about it. That's kind of seen as a critique, or it can be. And then secondly, it says, no one else is showing my work, and that kind of implies my work isn't worth showing. So I think the approach, approaching galleries has to be done in a very careful way to not have it generate those kind of responses. Do you all work with uh, outside curators with your stuff or do you do your own curatorial work yourselves? We do our own. We have, we have worked with um, outside curators, but mostly it's, it's in-house. This is something that, of course, all artists want to know is basically how can an artist get on the radar of a curator? Because curators, as far as I can tell, are the gatekeepers for the arts industry these days. They're the ones who have the connections and the networks to the people who are unattainable to those artists sitting in their studio. So... I totally lost my train of thought. On that. <laughs> um, to to link in, I think again, it has to be a genuine, genuine connection. So, at the moment, it's obviously not possible because we're all locked down. But go to people's shows, go and start conversations with people, or if you can't get there, chat to them on social media. Just talk to them in a genuine way that's not a sales pitch, and and people will check out your work. Like I chat to people all the time, and then subsequently go and have a look at their work so just just being involved in a genuine conversation goes a long way one of the essays in our forthcoming book is it was originally titled approaching galleries and then and then we wrote it and we retitled it engaging with galleries because approaching galleries is not necessarily the the right way to go about creating a relationship but engaging with galleries is so it's about supporting what they do 
and becoming familiar with these people. And then they will know who you are. They'll know your work. Curators and galleries hold on to this kind of information. So there's a lot of artists who we know just through them supporting what we do and coming to our shows um, and engaging with us on online and stuff. And we know that, I mean, it's our job, right? We know their work and we know what they do now. It's our job to do our research. And so when, if and when we see opportunities to put these people in shows, that's when we do select them. So Yeah, we've got a whole list of people we'd, we'd love to show work with, but just have to wait for the right opportunity to fit them into a show that would work. So, so yeah, there's many people probably don't know that we know about them, but we do. So it's just, it's, yeah, all comes from those, uh, it all comes from those connections and those conversations. Yeah, and news travels, right? Like if, if people are engaging with other galleries that we like or follow or other artists, we're seeing that as well because of just the way social media works and the way that the art world works and people talk. And and so it's, to not labor the point, it really is about genuine engagement with what people do rather than just trying to either sell yourself or sell your work. And that takes a lot of effort and work and time and it, it's a difficult task to uh, do i mean it's it's almost its own art form to be a good networker and I mean, whether that networking is face-to-face -face networking or social media networking it's its own thing like i've met people who are amazing with social media networking and they're absolutely uh, boring and uninteresting face-to-face -face. <laughs> uh, and, and vice versa, of course, yeah. people who are absolutely fabulous in conversation, but they can't do social media to save their lives. So it, it's hard because I was also thinking about the fact that you, as both practitioners of your own artwork and as gallerists and as curator and as writer, that you all are doing the same things that most of us are doing, which is sort of having separate gigs and separate income streams to try to make your life work. I mean, are you hoping to try to build the gallery into a thing that will be like a, a, your main income or is it always going to be basically sort of be a side project in, in combination with the rest of your artistic endeavors i think eventually we'll probably aim for a permanent space but not not for the foreseeable future because at the moment it's working really well for us not having permanent space and sort of it operating alongside our uh, personal practices but that's not to say that that could change in the future so yeah i mean there's no immediate plans for it to become the be all and end all, but um, that may change in the future. My intention for this is, I mean, our intention at the beginning was just we create an Instagram account, share some artwork that we love. We didn't, we didn't plan to to make a gallery that would take over our lives. Um, obviously, we're running with it, but I see my practice as being like four pronged now. So I'm, I make my own work. I do Delphian. I'm a writer and I'm a lecturer. I think all of those four parts are like integral to my practice now and I don't want any of them to to disappear or to take over from the other three now but my issue is, is that like in other industries so whatever lawyer doctor etc doesn't matter what industry people can do one job and and they're fine like it's good they make enough of an income they're somehow satisfied but in the creative industries it's almost a necessity that we do multiple things and split our efforts and split our time and split our focus i would you know i personally would love to try and find a way to like destroy the idea of a starving artist like get that word those set of words out of the vernacular completely and make it so that we can try to actually find a single maybe one maybe two you know sustainable jobs that could make it so that we could make a living instead of having to do four separate jobs to try and just you know make enough money but i should say that um i do those four jobs not out of necessity but because i love them and say um obviously i make money from selling my own work and i make money from lecturing but we don't pay ourselves from delphian and all of the writing, I used to get paid for writing, but all of the writing I do now, I do for free. So I I have the lecturing job almost so that I can afford to work for Delphian for free. So in that sense, it is kind of out of necessity. But if I was, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I don't feel like any of those things would be abandoned. Yeah, I'd probably agree, yeah. All right, fine. I'm alone in that. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, I think that the, the unusual thing about the creative industry of people having multiple jobs is is always down to monetary 
issues, isn't it? It's like to make ends meet, and the, and the creative industry is unusual in that, unlike any other industry. But um, that I don't know whether that will change in the future. I'm not sure. To put, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Unfortunately, yeah, I'm not a prognosticator, and so, because I'm a wise fool, I, I, there's a lot of things I don't know. So, I do like the title of the podcast, by the way. Thank is you. That a Socrates reference. It is uh, the Socratic method is the way I teach yeah. uh, is part of it. That's my methodology for being a professor. But also, when I was a kid, my dad used to always mock me by calling me uh, my uh, antics uh, sophomoric. Um, so which of course just translates directly to wise fool. So my father used to you know, mock me with the term <laughs> calling me a wise fool. And um, it sort nice. of stuck I, I mean, uh, to the point now I enjoy it. I like it. Thank you. So tell me more about your book, because this book sounds really interesting. When is it coming out? When are you planning on it coming out? How is it going to be available? And then of course, you know, how did it come about? Why did you feel that you had the uh, some unique information that could be put together into a book? And who's it trying to help? And what's it trying to elevate, etc.? It, it's it's scheduled to be launched in the end of June, but at the moment that's uncertain. <laughs> now that may have to be uh, moved, but we don't know. Yeah, it came about just well, we were approached by a publisher who wanted to work with us on on a book. And so we came up with the idea of doing this this as a book rather than an art book or, yeah, more a traditional one. So it's going to be a, a book of advice for early career artists, basically a business book. Yeah, but it's it's a series of opinion pieces and it's very much written in the vein that we acknowledge that we aren't an authority on everything. So we don't know everything. These These are some thoughts or ideas that we've kind of had. These are things that we've learned, but this isn't necessarily the right way for everyone we don't know there's a lot of these books right that are how-to lists and they're written by one person as if they know everything and and so we've very much tried not to do that okay so what are some of the things you it's about you said it's about engaging with art dealers art dealers or art galleries 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 okay because i've had other conversations where people like the term art dealer art advisor, art consultant. There are so many different words that go in the industry. It's, it's, I'm, I'm also not a huge fan of the vernacular that we all use because it's so oftentimes unique to a region as well. Like Those types of phrases commodify art. They act as if it's all commerce, which is not what we're trying to do at all. So Okay, so what are you trying to do? <laughs> I mean, we've never really sat down and spoken about what is our business plan or what is our modus operandi, but maybe this is the form for that, I don't know. But I mean, we our aim is to discover this amazing art by early career artists and show it to the world, basically, and support these artists because we are emerging artists too, I suppose. Yeah, actually, I didn't even ask, how old are you both? Both 32. Actually, Nick's 31. Yeah, I'll be 32 like a couple of months, yeah. Okay. Just you know, for reference for those people because they can't they can't see yeah. you. The, so. I noticed on your website that you not only sell and deal with original works, but you're also creating an additions. I am utterly fascinated with additions. My background is photography. I've also done printmaking. I'm always interested in how additions are working because the, like the. There are different things that, of course, I have lots of questions about, like, how do you do the pricing structure? Are they all the same price? Do they increase price over the run? Do you do really short editions or do you do big editions? Like, you know, so give me some some thoughts on why you chose to create some editions and how is it working for you? Well, so we, we usually do an edition with each show, usually. And that's just because editions are much more accessible to people. And we don't want to price anyone out. And it's a lot easier to sell 10 prints at £100 than it is to sell a painting for £1,000, especially for super early career artists. But we've just launched this new project called Lockdown Editions that is a response to this pandemic, basically, this global pandemic that's threatening to um, economically cripple a lot of artists. Firstly, we had to reschedule some shows, yeah, because we can't leave the house now. So... 
we basically pushed two shows so far back indefinitely until this is over. But we thought we need to do something to keep moving forward. And we also identified the fact that now is the time that artists need support more than ever. And now is the time that artists need sales more than ever. And so although a lot of people are probably buying less, and so it's less likely that we'll sell as many paintings, if we do some affordable additions, that's probably quite a, a good way of artists still making some income. And so because of the reasons why we're doing this and where we've identified the fact that these artists need this support right now, we've decided to not take a cut. So Delphine Gallery isn't taking a percentage, basically, of these additions. They're all digitally printed and they're available for 30 days each. So the amount of prints that the artist sells in those 30 days is the amount of the edition, basically. Within the edition, are they numbered, signed, all that jazz? Because like, I'm a bit, bit of an OCD person in certain things. Like, I do certificates of authenticity. I like put little hologram stickers on both the certificate and the print. I sign everything, you know, all this kind of jazz. Is that something that, as a young artist, is necessary? There's two ways of looking at it, really. So you you can go down the route of things being signed, which obviously makes them more valuable. But there's also price points to think about. So in the, in this time, we're these for these lockdown editions, they're not going to be signed but they will come with a certificate of authenticity with holographic stickers and that sort of thing. So, um, <laughs> so they will, yeah, they're all sent out directly to the, to the buyer with those, but it was also in this instance, a way of us limiting human contact as well, because so the person buys it, the printers print it and send it directly to the, to the customer. There's no in between whether we have to see the artist for them to sign the prints and then to send them on or the artist have to then go and ship them after they've signed them. So it's basically just limiting human contact as well. And, and on in this occasion well that leads to a question that i've had these days which is a lot of artists and galleries and places like you are, are doing prints i'm putting prints in air quotes for this and i wonder like because in the old days if you made a print run you would pay up front and you would basically have a stack of prints in your studio or in your gallery basically and then you're waiting to sell them but these days it seems like it's gotten to the point where it's the pricing structure is about the same that you can literally just basically print on demand as people purchase them. So is that the kind of format you're doing? That is the format we're doing for this, yeah. So that's kind of only really possible for digital prints, I think, because if, if you're doing screen prints, they've got to keep a screen exposed with your image on it, just sat in a, in a print studio or whatever. So for this, yeah, they're basically printed on demand because they're gicle prints. When I do prints, I do woodcuts of my own work. So obviously I cut some wood, print it, and then I've got a stack of prints that I need to sell. But for this, um, because also we're, we're releasing a new print every week for the duration of the lockdown so that we can basically make as much money for as many artists as possible during this lockdown. Once we get a few weeks in, if we were to have pre-ordered and pre-paid for all these prints, all of a sudden our house would be full of prints. So, yeah, which brings up a big thing that like a lot of people don't talk about in the arts industry, which is storage, <laughs> because like I have friends who do stone sculptures and metalworking. And I mean, just the sheer volume of space. And then, of course, the cost of rent that they have to do to store work that either is not currently on exhibition or not sold. People don't even take that into consideration when they think about art prices and artists and their issues. And of course, if you had a brick and mortar gallery, you would have to also store artwork as well. And you're paying for that. That's something that you know like i'm very happy i work on paper <laughs> yeah because it's super easy to store and transport and all that but i've got friends that like i know a guy that pays nearly twenty thousand euros a year just in storage for his old artworks that you know aren't on display and haven't sold yeah it's incredible yeah it's just one of the many costs that are incurred by uh, galleries that, that that people don't usually think about but yeah storage is a big one for sure yeah and artists artists yeah. need big studios if they make big work and then they still got to keep paying that throughout this lockdown alongside their their rent for their house and their website and all of this stuff so yeah do you each have studios yourselves 
I don't know. Uh, well, my yeah, my home office is my studio because my my work's photography based, so I don't really need a studio space per se. But Ben has a studio in the house that we live in. I have a studio, which is yeah, it's the ga- the garage in our house. Me too. Yeah, garage. I do the same thing. Yeah. Generally, selling online. So like, so you all utilize your social media, but are how do you actually sort of close the deal? Are you using your own website to do the online sales? Are you using other outlets to do some of these sales? So in other words, there are a plethora of other platforms for selling works that are available online. So the question is like, actually this will be both for the gallery and or for you as individual artists. Do you utilize some of these other online platforms for uh, sales? Yeah, we, we do. So we actually never publicly list works for sale online, or rarely. We do actually now a little bit on Artsy. We joined Artsy recently, and we list works for sale on there. But all of our sales come through email, essentially. So we, and we never post artworks on Instagram, listing the price and the size and all of that stuff. But we have a very detailed and thorough spreadsheet of anyone who's ever bought work from us in the past or expressed an interest in buying works from us. We often post saying, if you're interested in the catalog for this show, then send us an email. So all of our sales are through email contact, but we do have an online store on Shopify where we upload the works. And then when someone wants to buy one, we, or when we create a catalog for a show, we include a link to the artwork or collection that people can buy through. Yeah, so it's, it's basically an instant instant link that people can go. They can see more information, more detailed pictures than it's in the catalog, and then they can purchase directly through that link. And, but obviously the whole time we're in contact with them via email as well with a conversation. So, and yeah, I mean, closing the deal comes through a conversation through email. What about your own works? How do you sell your own works? Same, really. Through galleries, mainly. I sell my own work. But yeah, I mean, it's the same principle, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, for mine, through galleries or, yeah, same online through the store. Okay. So you you run a gallery and you are individually represented by other galleries? I'm not represented, no, but I've shown in other galleries. But yeah, I don't have full-time representation. No, neither do I. I think, I think that model is in flux a little bit at the moment anyway because of social media. I think social media has uh, instigated a change that seems to be happening in that sense now. I think galleries and artists are kind of almost forced to work with a lot more people than they would have traditionally done. I'm not signed to a gallery and we don't sign artists as a gallery. Okay. Now, stepping on to another topic, you also have your podcast. So let's be sure to talk about what you're doing on a, on your podcast. So you also basically do well, pretty much the same thing as this, which is talk to artists and get their insights about the current contemporary industry that we're all in. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar. Um, artists, gallerists, curators, collectors, yeah, the whole range of people from the art industry basically that we interview and try and get a little insight into uh, their practice and then also advice for, for early career artists as well. Yeah, it's, it's very much done in a similar vein to a lot of what we do in that, firstly, it's, it's aimed at getting this insider knowledge from people who are knowledgeable about certain areas of the art world, which is why we try and include artists, collectors, whatever. And we always ask them, a, there's a few questions that we always ask them, and one of them is, what one piece of advice would you give to an early career artist starting out? They're all kind of done in that, in that vein of um, mining this information from people another yeah another one is similar to to the book is just that um to kind of acknowledge and almost celebrate the fact that we don't know everything there are some people that know more than us so let's get them in get their get their knowledge and kind of consolidate it for the people who are listening i suppose all right so what's the best insight you got from the podcast for uh, an emerging artist I think that's one that we say quite a lot is to treat being an artist as a business is really important to take that side of things really seriously. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm not good at the business side, Well, but you sort of have to be like, you have to work on that because especially if you're not represented by a gallery, you're going to have to do a lot of that thing, that side of things yourself. 
Yeah, no, nobody's naturally good at that. Nobody naturally loves doing it. It's If you want to be serious about your art career and for being an artist to be your career, you need to treat what you do like a small business and you need to take it seriously. And being one of these artists that, that thinks like, oh, I'm just not good at that is a bit of a cop-out. It's, it's like, well, nobody is to begin with. You have to force yourself to be. Okay, within that, you're a lecturer, I'm a professor. Why are we not teaching that in art school? Because it's very hard to work it into a curriculum and it's very hard to mark, basically. I mean, I would love to, and I, and we do to some extent, but I think it's maybe not necessarily the, um, the job of, of art, of um, education institutions to teach that kind of thing, maybe. Because I, I can't really see a way how it would be included in a curriculum or marked i mean that's partly why we do what we do as delphian we do all of these talks and books and stuff i think there has to be a level of autodidacticism on the part of artists as well seeking out this kind of stuff have you found a way to, to work it into your curriculum like this professional practice type stuff uh, the last university I was at, we actually did build a, a professional practice class uh, into the final year of, uh, of the curriculum, but I admittedly would say it was not very good. The one thing that I... It's tricky, isn't it? Well, it's tricky because for some reason, when we created a professional practices in the arts class, for some reason, and, and I'm as guilty of this as every other professor, I thought that an artist would be the right person to teach it. And I've come to realize after doing it for years that I don't think an artist is the right person to teach it. I think it's more a gallerist or a, or even just a business person, just a, like a, a, a yeah. business professor coming in and teaching the business, you know, their business techniques directly relevant towards the art. So it's not, I don't think an art professor is necessarily, unless they have, of course, have a great career in doing this kind of stuff, is necessarily the best professor to teach the business of the arts. I think a business professor would be the best person yeah. to teach that and just tailor it to the arts industry. Yeah, I think that what what art institutions teach is the, the theory, the history, and then the practical skills. And this professional practice doesn't really sit within those three things very well. It's almost like a fourth, a fourth thing that is necessary to being an artist. And yeah, maybe it needs to come from some business mogul rather than an artist. Well, I mean, I wanted to learn contracts. That was a big one when, when I was starting out, especially as a photographer, because I would have negotiated when I got out of school, people were like, Oh yeah, you're going to do this job for us as a, do an advertising shoot. Okay. Here's a contract. And I'm sitting there like, I don't know how to read this contract. I have no idea what this says. You know, I had to learn for myself the difference of work for hire versus, you know, all the other terminology that's involved in that. And then of course, rights management, intellectual property law, um, model releases. I mean, and then of course, if you're going to get into having a brick and mortar place, signing a lease, what kind of insurance do you need? Um, all this kind of stuff. Like if so, I really wish somebody would have at least just touched on these things. So at least I was aware that these were issues before I got out into the real world and basically flopped around until I made a mistake. And then I realized, oh shit, that was wrong. I need to do it this other way or oh i have to i have to like hire an accountant to deal with taxes because my personal taxes need to be different than my professional taxes and this kind of stuff like it's just not even touched on hmm. yeah yeah it's a huge amount of information you need to take in it's aside from everything you've learned at university yeah it's a bit of a minefield really <laughs> maybe it's also because there's so many areas that you need to have knowledge in so learning about being an artist at art school is about making work and how to so how to make the work and how to know what it is that you're making in terms of context and history and whatever. But then being an artist, you have to be good at things like contracts and insurance and tax and marketing and graphic design and photography and writing, all of these things that you don't necessarily need to be an expert about all of these things. Like I'm I'm definitely not an expert in in any of those things but you need to have an understand or at least like dip your toe in enough so that you can do all of these things like submit your tax returns and stuff 
Indeed. I mean, it's really, really hard for young people to come out of school with these grand romantic ideas and then basically be like smacked down by reality going, yeah, but you don't know how to do this. You don't know how to do that. You don't know anything about this. You've never done that. I mean, I made way too many mistakes coming out of art school that I shouldn't have had to have made. And I feel like my education could have offered more assistance with that. I think though, actually on that point, so did I, I made a whole lot of mistakes and I probably still am making some, but I think that's almost part of it. I think that's almost where some of the exciting stuff happens. And I think it's quite formative and quite important almost. If everything's fed to you and everything's too easy, I think maybe that might limit the quality of the work, maybe. Well, like, okay, I've been doing this. I've been teaching for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. One thing that I really think is something that's missing from contemporary academia is I think they should go back to creating a, like a, let's say a senior year apprenticeship where you actually like will be an assistant. So, you know, because mm. like being an assistant, I remember doing that when I got out of school and I learned exponentially larger amount of professional techniques, practices, uh, et cetera, even just being a day raid assistant instead of like an actual like studio assistant there every day and seeing the absolute inner workings of a studio um i would love to see that like a year-long you know apprenticeship maybe i don't know what you want to call it but you know assistantship like be a mandatory thing for before graduation because i think that would give a great uh foundation for uh, once you graduate yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I worked as an assistant, you learn so much and it's and stuff that you wouldn't learn at, at college, university. Um, yeah, it's definitely a, value, a very valuable thing to learn on the job like that um, from, from all different aspects of things as well that you wouldn't even think about as well. Things that wouldn't even cross your mind that you would have to know. But yeah. Yeah. So definitely that would be a, a very useful thing to introduce. Another part of the reason why doing Delphian has added to our practices because I know so much more about what goes into the organization of a show and things like marketing and sales and all of that stuff. So I would advise artists to kind of wing it a little bit and just do these things and maybe make some mistakes, but learn by doing. Yeah. One of the biggest problems artists have is we talk ourselves out of things. Like yeah. we sit back and we're sitting on the sofa or whatever, and we're like, Hey, I want to do this but I don't have enough time, but I don't have enough money, but I don't already have a network that will support me in this or whatever. We so easily talk ourselves out of potentially great things that could make our careers fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the greatest obstacle is yourself, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. So like that's, this has been great. Thank you for inviting us on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Good luck to you and stay safe and healthy. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Likewise.